heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, in for Malcolm. And today, we are talking about 11 life lessons to help you deal with a health crisis and lead a resilient life. Seems incredibly appropriate as a topic in the era of the COVID pandemic, but our discussion tonight is going to apply to much more than just COVID. It applies to any health challenge or even severe life challenge that we all face at one time or another in our lives. Our guest is Chris McLeod. He is a partner in the Canadian law firm Cambridge LLP. Chris has been fighting the challenges in Canada for access to medications that are life-sustaining. And that includes not only medications, but also issues on the legal front related to the vaccines, where he and others feel that the government is using people as an experimental pool, which we are also seeing in the United States and throughout Western Europe. Canada has a unique situation with very severe challenges to life-sustaining medicines, both because of intense regulatory frameworks at the provincial level and at the federal level, with government deciding what people can and cannot have. So Mr. McLeod has actually initiated lawsuits against the Canadian government for access to these life-sustaining medications. But there's another meaningful dimension to what Chris McLeod brings to our listeners and to his clients as a lawyer. He has cystic fibrosis, and that, as many of our listeners know, is actually a very severe life-threatening lung disease. And Normally, people with cystic fibrosis have a very short lifespan, and Chris McLeod has far exceeded that. To put his story in context, it helps to understand the world of cystic fibrosis 40 or 50 years ago when he was a child. The first medical description of cystic fibrosis was in 1938, and the first clinics were set up in the 1950s. It's a hereditary disease that results from a mutation in a gene that controls salt movement in and out of cells, and that influences the amount of water in our mucus secretions. People with cystic fibrosis have abnormally thick and sticky mucus And it blocks various critical organs, especially the lungs, sinuses, digestive tract, and pancreas. Then bacteria 
trapped in the lung mucus lead to recurrent chest infections and ultimately an early death. When Chris was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, children only lived about four years, which meant that half the children born with cystic fibrosis at the time would die before they could even start kindergarten. It's a pretty frightening scenario to imagine parents confronting cystic fibrosis having to decide how they respond to this information. Should they ignore the medical facts and push on trying to set expectations for their child and aim for a normal life? What do they do? As Chris will tell us more about it, every year he lived, the life expectancy would improve a little bit. And so Chris surfed the survival wave and learned that we doctors are not always right in our predictions. Then a decade ago, Chris was the first person in Canada to gain access to a whole new class of medications for cystic fibrosis called CFTR modulators. It's a gene modulator therapy. And he was able to begin therapy, truly a miracle because it had not been approved by the US FDA. It was developed by a company in Boston, had not been approved by the US FDA, could not at that time have even been considered bringing into Canada. And the company decided to give him the medicine on a compassionate use basis. And with his fighting spirit, he and his family and his doctors managed to persuade the Canadian government to let this medicine come in. And he has been on Kaleidico ever since. And he's going to tell you that story. Well, he returned to health and that sparked his fight to help others get access to these life-saving medications. And some have said that spark is the wrong word, that Chris's response was actually like a rocket. So <laughs> I think that tells you a lot about the guests we'll be interviewing tonight. He's used his education and position, as well as his perseverance, tenacity, and fighting spirit to gain the ear of politicians, and has been a leading figure in the drive to improve the quantity and quality of life for people with CF and other conditions. Chris, welcome to the show. I am so honored to have you, and I know our listeners are going to learn a lot. So tell us more about your experience with how you got this new medicine and what it did and what some of your thoughts are about how this all came to be. Dr. Lee, thanks so much for having me. And I'm eager to share the story, which I've just put into uh, a book, Beating the Odds, the 11 Lessons to Survive or Overcome a Health Crisis and Lead a Resilient Life. I've been blessed beyond measure. Um, grateful to uh, God and family and friends and the medical community and everyone uh, for helping me get here. Maybe just of interest, because the entire world right now is addressing the COVID <clears throat> pandemic, but COVID is eerily similar 
to cystic fibrosis. Obviously, ventilators are in high demand. Your lungs fill up with fluid and you lose lung function. You're ultimately on a ventilator and you might expire would be the worst scenario with COVID. We're all told to stay six feet apart, wear masks. Well, cystic fibrosis clinics, we've been told to stay six feet apart and wear masks as CF patients. We can't give it to anybody, obviously, but there's certain bugs that only affect people with CF. And uh, we, so we've had to, for at least 20, 30 years now, when they figured this out, keep CF patients apart, six feet apart. There's actually a movie that came out, Hollywood did one called Five Feet Apart, I believe it's called, and uh, which was two people with CF who fell in love and because they couldn't be six feet within each other, they took a foot, so it was five feet apart. But back to the point, which is COVID has similarities, obviously, to CF, the respiratory element of it. And uh, when I hit the wall when I was 42, my lung function had plummeted below 30%. I was on four liters of oxygen a minute. Went into St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto. We call it Canada's Urban Angel. It's a phenomenal healthcare facility. <clears throat> but I was there for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, taking every antibiotic that science could provide. None of them were working. And so after literally, I went in in June, a little out for a couple of weeks in July, but this is now the end of September in 2012. And my mom, who's a woman of incredible faith, and uh, myself, we were happened to have watched a, a sermon on uh, television or through YouTube. We're both talking, it was called uh, Praying Boldly. And uh, we were commenting to each other. She's in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I was in Toronto in the hospital. And she we was talking about what a great sermon it was. And she says, well, you know, Chris, I've taken it to heart. And I have been praying boldly. And I know, as sure as night follows day, something amazing is going to happen this week. She goes, I just know it. She said it with that degree of certainty that you just had to believe it, her that it was true. So, but I couldn't figure out what it could be. This is Sunday afternoon, September 21st, I believe it was. And I said, well, Mom, I hope you're right, but I, I'm not sure what it could be. Well, sure enough, and by the way, life expectancy is in the sort of 40s. So I'm kind of hitting the wall, and I'm under 30%. They're putting me on a lung transplant list as the last option. This is Canada, by the way, where it's very cold. We're September heading into winter in the flu season, so it's not looking good. So it's, I'm 42 years old at the time. Life expectancy is sort of in the early to mid 40s at that time. So I'm kind of hitting the wall. Uh, we're heading into it's September. This is Canada, it's cold, flu season's coming, and winter. I'm under 30% lung function, four liters of oxygen a minute, you have to start looking at a lung transplant. So I said, Mom, I hope you're right. Something amazing will happen. And so the next morning, as God is my witness, this happened. My doctor, Dr. Tullis, who wrote the foreword to the book, comes in, 9 a.m. Chris, good news and bad. I said, moratorium on bad news, good news only. She said, well, you have a rare form of CF. There's various genes that are affected with cystic fibrosis. Mine was the Delta 551 gene type. Well, I had no idea there was a distinction between gene types. 
I knew there is a CF gene, but I had no idea that they now discovered that there was different gene types. And a company out of Boston, Massachusetts, Vertex Pharmaceutical, had been spending years to try and normalize this gene defect. Well, they did, and the product that they ultimately came up with, the medication, you take two pills a day, one in the morning, one at night, is Kaleidico. She said, the problem is it's expensive. It was uh, over 200 grand a year, but the company will give it to you on compassionate grounds. If your situation is so serious, you'll be dead by Christmas. This is September. The only hitch is the government of Canada would have to allow the drug into the country without Health Canada approval because it hadn't been submitted yet. It was so new. Uh, I said, well, this has got to be a no-brainer. The government pays no money. Um, there is no other alternative medicine. I've been here for, I've been taking a hospital bed for literally weeks and weeks with no success, which costs the system money. I said, I can't imagine they'll have a problem with it. Well, of course, they had a significant problem with it, the government. They didn't tell us. They just, when we filed the application under what was known as the Special Access Program, for a, any medication not approved by Health Canada could potentially be approved on 24 hours notice if it was an urgent situation, a life was on the line, and there was no other alternative medicine. We hit all three points. Life on the line, urgent, no other alternatives. Well, they just never bothered to reply to the letter. So days went by. And it was supposed to be a 24-hour turnaround. Yes or no, 24 hours. Nothing. Tumbleweed. So finally, uh, I said, we've got, I've got to take this ball in my, in my own hands. Pulled together friends from far and wide, lots of political people, retired politicians, and just average Joe Canadians. Moved heaven and earth and convinced, pressured the government and the Minister of Health to intervene and overturn a very bad bureaucratic decision to not allow Kaleidico in under the special access program. I got the drug within 10 days. My lung function went from 30% to just under 60. And it's been like that ever since. I've been in hospital once since 2012. So the pre- That's incredible. That's incredible. It's amazing. And look at this thing. Six months before I went on Kaleidico, I was in hospital for four of six months looking at a expiring. Post-Kaleidico, eight years later, nine years later, I'd been in hospital once. <laughs> and I'm working full-time and represent my clients, including suing the Canadian government on some bad decisions that it's made. Uh, so that's the success story. But it goes to the power of prayer and the power of prayers by others. Because my mom said that Sunday, Chris, I'm praying for you and everyone else is praying for you. I know it because they tell me. I just know something's going to happen. Remember that sermon I was telling about uh, called uh, Praying Boldly? Well, someone would say, well, Chris, you know, really, your prayers didn't do anything because uh, some would say, I disagree with them, because Vertex was working on this medication and the research for 20 years before you came along. Uh, there was already a company out there. Well, the company didn't have access into the, the drug into Canada. I happened to get it, and I've been on a campaign fighting for access for others ever since. So I have no doubt, in my mind, prayers were made. That's a fact. 
prayers were answered. That's a fact because I got on the drug and I've been a thriving and succeeding ever since. So in my mind, that's an example of the power of prayer for others and the impact. Because I could feel and knew that people were praying. Well, I would agree with you, Chris. I, I would agree with you. And one of the things that I think is, in, is a misconception about prayer, God doesn't specify how he answers prayer or what means he uses to do so. Mm-hmm. And how he works through people to achieve his ultimate will. Absolutely. So this had been in development but you had no knowledge of it. Your doctor had no knowledge of it until very close to when you learned of it. Yeah. And there had to be, I think where prayer comes in so obviously to me is moving mountains, opening minds that are closed and helping to pave the way for something that's there, but not available to you. So I think we need to look beyond the specific the specifications of human beings about how prayer is or isn't answered and look at the fact that God has his ultimate creativity about how he answers prayer. So true. So well said. Before we started, you mentioned something I thought was so apt. You know, we have this assumption that answered prayer has to involve a supernatural event, right? <laughs> like someone's walking on water and I think you you nailed it when you said God works in mysterious ways through people. We are tools and uh, vessels, vehicles for his good work. And uh, that was just a classic, classic example. One of the 11 lessons I have is the power of prayer. And I talk about that story of that Sunday conversation with my mother who said, I've been praying for you. Everyone's been praying for you. And I just know with absolute certainty something's going to happen this week. She goes, I can just feel it. She said it was such certainty. I knew it had to be true, but I just wasn't clear what it could be until that 9 a.m. conversation the next morning. And the other piece in the chapter on the life lesson on prayer I talk about is, uh, so there's the power of people praying for you and for all of us to know that when we pray for others, because we do it in churches and other religious uh, faiths around the world, people pray for people. That's what we do when we gather on Sundays in the Christian tradition, certainly. And uh, we pray for people collectively, and those prayers get answered. And in any event, the people we pray for, they know we're praying for them, because I've been there where others prayed for me, and you can just feel it in your bones. It's very empowering. The second element is what I call the Gethsemane prayer. When a very human Jesus, before he was led to his crucifixion, knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed, Father, uh, let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but thy will be done. That, and he wept, and he said, look, I want... <laughs> it was a prayer of almost desperation. And uh, what I call the Gethsemane prayer is when all of us are at our wit's end, we kneel down and we pray to God that this cup pass us by, but not our will, but his be done. And those, that's, and I've given example in the book where I talk about getting a bronchoscopy, which is a, just a terrible procedure where they can't put you under. 
but they put a camera down your throat because my lungs had been bleeding for weeks on end. And it was first year law school, 100% finals coming up. I couldn't get out of the hospital. I'd been in, out of 12 weeks, I'd been in for five for the semester. I knelt down in the hospital room and I said, God, I'm out of steam. If this is all you have for me, then so be it. But I just can't. I, need, I have no more strength to do, deal with this anymore. And as God is my witness, I felt this incredible sense of peace. And, you know, the key words in the Bible, be not afraid. A complete absence of fear. Yes. And the presence of peace. It was un, like truly coming from outside of myself. It just wasn't a little burst of confidence. It was the absence of fear. I went into the procedure room, and I was even giving the doctor a pep talk. It's not pleasant, I'm sure, for a doctor to have to do the procedure at anyone. And I said, I've got no concerns. I know you're going to do a great job. I made it through the procedure, and when I left the room and got back to my, I was going to say the hotel room, the hospital room, uh, all of a sudden it disappeared. I've never had the feeling since. It was the most incredible feeling I've ever had of the complete absence of fear, the presence of peace. And I can, I prayed, and again, that was the result. Uh, you know, it wasn't the parting of the Red Sea. In my life, though, it was the equivalent of the parting of the Red Sea because it, it showed me in no uncertain terms. Prayer made, prayer answered. The capacity and the strength and the peace were present to weather a very challenging storm. So I talk about that as an example of the Gethsemane prayer that I made at one moment in my life. Now, I've made the, the same kind of prayer at other moments, and I didn't have that same experience. But it really spoke to me and taught me a lesson I had to share and I cannot forget. The power of personal prayer and the power of others praying for you. I've witnessed both. I've been very blessed in that way. To actually witness and feel and know that others are praying for me and those prayers are answered and that I've made a prayer and it's been answered. And of course, as you say, lots of the cynic and unfortunately cynicism is um, widespread and incredibly popular now, right? If you're positive and you think uh, you talk in positive terms, people think, oh, you just don't appreciate the systemic challenges of, you know, inequality and oppression and uh, whatever else, and, and positivities look down on. Well, I say that the power of positive thinking, the power of prayer, are mandatory tools, by the way, that cost nothing and are available to everyone. And you need, it's the one thing when you're in a health crisis that you can have access to. You control your response to a situation. Let it be bold, positive, daring. Incorporate the power of prayer. And, uh, you know, it doesn't mean, it, it does mean that you're going to, uh, whatever happens, we're all going to die at the end of the day. I mean, that's a given. But your God will be with you as you go through this journey called life. So the book talks about and gives more examples. I just talked about the power of prayer, which is one of one of eleven lessons. But uh, it's really resonated for me. That's something I felt, particularly in this COVID time. I had to share because we're all sitting around worried and concerned, and every one of these lessons that I put in the book is uh, cost nothing. You don't need a PhD. You just have to be, you know, a living, alive human being and uh, you can adopt them.
That's exactly right. And what I've been very struck by in as a cultural change watching over the course of my medical career is how many patients facing health crises seem to have developed a mindset that I call that is described as in the psychological literature as learned helplessness. Mm, And I think part of that comes when people are expecting others to pay for medicines or to pay for procedures or doctors to fix them rather than looking at what each of us can do ourselves to be healthier and, and to take care of our partnership in the health journey with our health professionals. And I see less and less of that as time has gone on. And I, to me, you exemplify the, the person who sees these are things I can do. These are things they don't necessarily cost anything. They cost my time and energy and focus. And they are within my control. Instead yeah. of complaining about what's not within your control, to look at the things that you can choose to use. And through some of my own major uh, health crises, I've had to do exactly that myself. And it does work. Prayer does work. Yes, I've experienced it with family members, with patients, with myself. I'm just finding the power and strength in your words because they are so true. And I hope our listeners pay close attention. We'll talk a little bit more about all of this and about some of your legal challenges in Canada after our break. We'll take a short break and Voice of a Nation will be right back. Listen to Malcolm, the Voice of a Nation on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android or Alexa. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. And it's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com.
Welcome back to Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America in Malcolm, and our guest tonight is Canadian attorney Dr. Chris McLeod. I started to say doctor because he's been through so many medical things and he's so knowledgeable about the medical things. I almost felt like I was talking to a doctor, but Chris is an attorney. He is undertaking many legal challenges and suits against the Canadian government. And he has been sharing his own story as a patient through truly life-threatening medical challenges with the disease of cystic fibrosis, which normally is a very short life expectancy that Chris has far exceeded. Chris, I'm so grateful that the power of prayer and your perseverance and tenacity and fighting spirit and access to the novel medication that you fought to get has kept you going and in fighting mode to help others. Oh, no, thanks very much. And uh, just on your point about having to you know, take control of the situation, and maybe I'll make another comment from the, from the book, and then we can talk a little bit about the challenges we face in Canada with such a highly regulated healthcare environment and, uh, you know, placing the, the, your care, as you say, you need to take control for yourself. But when it's not between a patient and a doctor, like it, it should be, and a bureaucrat who you have no clue who they are, and they don't know anything about you, starts making those decisions, you have a problem. Uh, but before I get to that topic, let me just wrap up the piece. I'll tell you another quick anecdote about, on your point, Dr. Lee, which was people need to learn helplessness. I call it in the book institutionalization. It's so easy. You can't decide what you eat, when you eat, what happens to you, what your diagnoses are. And it doesn't take long. After a few days, you have, you, you can't, they won't even let you get out of bed to get a glass of water. You have to push a button. They just don't want people falling, I guess. But I call it, uh, you need to be the CEO of your own health. You are the minister of health, the president, the governor, and a congressperson. And the medical team, or that's your team. You need to learn how to lead. You need to inspire, to motivate. Uh, I would always make a point of, no matter what, get up in the morning. I wanted the shift that was the night shift to see that I was up early. If shift change was at seven, I got up at six thirty. I get up, dress up, even if I just threw some water on my face and put clothes on, and then had to make the bed. Even if I immediately, because I was exhausted, lay back on the bed, I would be dressed. Not everyone can do this, but if you can, <clears throat> I would unplug the IV, walk outside. It was a tough walk, but I would try and get across the street, uh, take off the four liters of oxygen for about 15 minutes to get a cup of coffee, buy donuts for the staff. You need to reverse engineer the care process. You need to let the shift that's leaving know that you're still in the fight, and the shift coming on know there's still fight left in the kid. And uh, doctors come in, if you're able to, always stand up and shake their hand. <laughs> you that must have blown them away when you did that. I have this mental image of <laughs> you literally taking charge of the hospital room and your bed and being dressed. That is 
quite a picture and what a fantastic story to inspire others. Well, my doctor tells the story when she wrote the foreword. She said, I knew that this was going to be an unusual patient when I received an email asking, <laughs> once you figure out what the email pattern is at a hospital, it's usually last name, first initial at stmikes.com. So it's easy to figure out how to reach people. Emailed my doctor and booked an appointment. She had to come in anyway, some point in the 24 hours. I was living in the hospital in my room. Uh, get up, dress up for the appointment. Uh, when the doctor comes in, stand up and shake their hand. Ask them how they're doing. I always <laughs> make a point of saying, How's all, how are the other patients? Is everyone okay? If there's anything you or anyone need, don't hesitate to ask. Uh, so that's you know, amazing. That I remember every time the the nurses would come in, I'd always say, "So how are you? You're starting the shift. Is everything okay? <laughs> Do you have all the supplies you need? Not that I could actually fix supplies, but uh, I said, if there's anything you need, let me know, and I'll try and make sure you can get it. Not that <laughs> I necessarily could, but I wanted them to know I was at their disposal, and that as the CEO of the health initiative that I called affectionately the campaign for health. I also took the whiteboard in the hospital where they say who your nurse is for the day in the porter. I erased it and I wrote the goal. It was simple. I needed to get my weight up to 165 and I needed to get my lung function in a perfect world. I'd never been at these two numbers for years. 165 pounds, 65% lung function. At the time I was at 30% and under 150 pounds. Never had weighed 165 pounds in my entire life. That's why I set it as a goal, because it had never been achieved. I knew it was virtually impossible. Then at the bottom of the whiteboard, I wrote, never, ever, ever give up, ever. And I, <laughs> one nurse said to me, I think she thought I was becoming delusional. <laughs> and she meant, well, everybody was nice. But she said, you know, Chris, uh, people far healthier than you have expired. You've been here now for four months. You keep getting dressed up every morning. You don't really have anywhere to go. <laughs> she said it nicely. She wasn't being mean. But I think she thought I had to come to grips with reality and figure out if I needed a lung transplant, I needed to get on long-term disability, whatever it was. And she actually inspired me to, for a quick second, I thought, geez, maybe I am on a frolic here. Found no fertile soil. I immediately said to her, let's call her Jane. Jane, here's the rule in this room. That goal gets met. And if it doesn't, we're carried out the back. This is a, a live or die moment. Everyone on the team has to buy into that dream. And if you don't, you know, that's fine. But you can't be on the team anymore. <laughs> so she <laughs> Good kind for of you. And I said, look, at no, I think you're terrific. But you're you're just not you got to get with the program. I said there is no shifting gears, and if I expire on that principle on that hill, it is a hill we will die on. So and then of course Kaleidico came along, and I walked out the front door, uh, doubled the lung function, 165 pounds I hit. I haven't got to 65 percent lung function. I'm still under 60, but I'm still doubled what I was, and I'm confident I'll still get there. Um, but that goes to your point of learned helplessness. You need to work harder on that than you do on anything else. It is dangerous. So if I could shift for a minute, because that goes to the Canadian. There's some good things about the Canadian system. 
you know, if you need a hospital bed, you can get it. And you don't get a huge bill. The challenge, one of the major challenges is access to life-saving medication. The government has created such a clamp. One of the former presidents of the United States had a great line that I always use. President Ronald Reagan. He said, what are the nine scariest words in the English language? Hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So true. Welcome to the Canadian uh, healthcare system. When it comes to access to innovative new medication. I mean, you know, people love to hate a pharma company, but some of the most important life-saving medications come from hard R&D, where people invested millions in the research. <clears throat> Oftentimes they don't succeed, but when they do, and with Kaleidico, it was a grand slam home run, you've got to recoup the cost. They can be expensive. <clears throat> Canada is, I mean, there's, and I'm suing the federal government in court uh, because they have created, we call it alphabet soup. There's so many letters in the, in the words and the acronyms that they call these government agencies. We have the PMPRB, which regulates the price that a drug can be sold at in Canada. Patent Medicine Pricing Review Board. If you get through the PMPRB, then you get go to Health Canada, and if they approve you, you then have to go to CADF, the Canadian, I don't even remember what it stands for, but it's the Canadian Advanced Drug Therapy and Health Treatment Body. It's a health technology assessment body. They determine, and it's like a star chamber. No one <clears throat> can see, you don't know who's doing the review. They decide uh, based on whatever evidence they tend to look at, but they won't tell you what it is whether or not they'll make a recommendation whether the provinces should or should not negotiate with the drug company to list the drug. They might just say, sorry, it's too expensive. Uh, don't even negotiate. But then the provinces, which and their organization is the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance, PCPA. Got PMPRB, CADTH, PCPA, all of whom have a different role you're unclear who's accountable to who. Actually, it almost sounds like no one's accountable to anyone. They just all make whatever decisions they feel for the moment. And that alphabet soup is enough to make you dizzy. Oh, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. And the trouble is the politicians don't know how it works. The minister of health in one province wasn't a doctor because often that's the case. He's a politician. And he said, look, Chris, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not a doctor. You don't want me to make the decision. We got to leave it to the experts who he believed were all the bureaucrats in the ministry. And I said, gave him the Reagan line. I said, look at nine scariest words in the English language. Hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. They're trying to be helpful. I don't believe that they're intentionally causing these problems, but the road to hell can be paved with good intentions. And that is what is happening here. And so, exactly right. you know, it's uh, I said the only people I want involved in any decision about what medication I or any other patient takes, the patient and their doctor. That's it. And unless the doctor invites someone else in or the patient does, I don't want anyone else involved. And those two people, patient and doctor, will decide the treatment regime that a patient will have. And the government's job is to make sure that anyone who that no one is left behind 
So we, we try to make sure we have everyone get access to medications. In Canada, they're trying to now say they don't want to negotiate with a drug. Instead of just negotiating a good price, they're trying to regulate the companies out of existence. And it's just a, it's a really terrible situation right now in Canada. And it's getting progressively worse with government regulation in the healthcare space, which is precluding access to life-sustaining medications. That was one of the true measures of progress under President Trump's administration was deregulating a lot of the medication issues that were driving up the cost in the United States and in giving approval for people to seek medications from other countries where similar regulatory protections were in place, such as Canada, where the medication prices are lower cost than in the U.S. No, it's a it's really, truly sad and phenomenal how bureaucracy and bureaucracy isn't just in government. You can have a multinational corporation that sadly has too much bureaucracy. But um, government is one of the clearest examples on the north of the 49th parallel within Canada. You know, where it's, you need to take some lessons in my respectful view of the downside of the Canadian system, which is on the access to medication front. It's really, you know, every system has something you can learn and something you want to learn not to do it. And the, uh, the over-regulation, the downside of the Canadian system is massive over-regulation that is precluding, it is preventing innovative new medications from entering the country. One of my understandings in the U.S. system that's quite successful is you had an Orphan Drug Act back in, I think it was in the 80s, where you really knew how to fast track. I mean, listen, a drug will be expensive if you have to spend a ton of money coming up with it, and there's only a limited group of people that can receive it. Of course, it's going to be a little more expensive. But we need innovation is driven by the private sector not by government. One thing I think everyone can agree with, innovation will never come out of government. Government has a role in a place, but innovation is not in its wheelhouse. That is private sector. And Canada has, we have no pharma, virtually no pharmaceutical companies like, you know, you have Pfizer, Sanofi, Vertex Pharmaceutical is the one that invented and patented Kaleidoscope after years of hard research, but it also creates great jobs. And uh, Canada has just, uh, you know, it's really created a lot of problems at the federal level, saying to these companies, sorry, unless you reduce your price by 90%, you cannot even sell it in your drug in our country. Well, how's that helpful? <laughs> if you want to say to government, you want to sell to government, you need to reduce your price and we'll negotiate. Well, then negotiate. If you're a terrible negotiator government, then hire private sector people to negotiate for you. But don't regulate it so that no one can cross our border to market life-saving medications. And, uh, you know, it's. I remember I was flying on a flight. Just a quick anecdote. And this was before I knew, uh, before Kaleidica, when I knew there was any issues. I was flying from Chicago to Houston, 
and the guy next to me, we got chatting about healthcare and differences between Canada and the States. And he said to me, and at the time I didn't even think of it as an issue because there weren't the issues we see now. He said, but isn't the problem in the Canadian system that the decision isn't between you and your doctor about your treatment? There's a bureaucrat inserted in the middle. And I don't want a bureaucrat deciding my health when he doesn't know me. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I agree with you, but I don't think that happens. Well, I was dead wrong. <laughs> it absolutely is. If you, there's a pandemic in Canada on bureaucratic interference in access to life-saving medications, and it's got to stop. Well, you're right. And actually, you're right. In the, that applies in the United States. There's a pandemic of political interference governors, bureaucrats, the three-letter agencies, <laughs> and other doctors who choose not to even read the studies, there, there's a great deal of political interference throughout this pandemic. But then we've got a layers in the United States that maybe are, you're not familiar with, but we have insurance guidelines that tell us what patients can have. Then we have this whole middle layer of this truly obnoxious business model of pharmacy benefits managers who get paid a kickback. They're exempted from the anti-kickback legislations. They get paid kickbacks by the drug companies to deny medicines to patients. So they put up all these roadblocks to things that we want to prescribe for patients that are perfectly appropriate and that aren't even expensive medications. I mean, they'll put up the pharmacy benefits managers will deny simple, cheap, expensive, inexpensive generic medicines just to not have to pay for a $10 or $20 a month medicine Jeez. and save money for the insurance company. It's, wow. it's, it's truly unconscionable that patients have so many roadblocks to getting medicines. Now, oftentimes this goes to the learned hopelessness I commented on. Mm -hmm. I will say to the patient, don't waste your time and energy fighting with, with them over this. This medicine, you can go to Walmart and pay cash and it's $10 a month. Yeah, You don't need them to pay for it. That's great. That's but great. they don't know that and they don't hop around. Well, and I think it goes to the central point. And, you know, I think it, it's fair on both sides. Whatever, what you've described on the private side with kickbacks and insurance and pharma, et cetera, that goes to bureaucracy in part. And where I'm talking on the government, yes. I can't see it on the private side. Where, And that's why people need to be their own best advocate. The CEO of your own healthcare, And uh, you need to take a robust position and advocate fearlessly for yourself. And learned helplessness is one of the biggest challenges. I love the phrase, I hate the phrase, and I love, I love the, your use of it, because you're acknowledging a real systemic problem that has to be addressed. At the end of the day, the one life we're responsible for is our own. God's gonna say to I me, mean, I've always believed that when at the end of our days, God's gonna say to us, you know, I gave you a life. I gave, I created you. I gave you life. What did you do with it? Good, bad, or ugly. Just tell me the story because I gave you phenomenal opportunities. And let's hope learned helplessness isn't on the top of the list. I think that's a very good point. One of the things that I ask, I was leading a 
a therapy group some years ago, one of the things that I asked the participants in the group, what would you most like to finish or have accomplished if you were told you had six months to live? And that needs to become your goals. Well, it was interesting, Chris, the group members turned it around on me and said, well, we'll answer it, Dr. Lee, if you will also. <laughs> I love so it. So I said, okay, fair enough. And you know, I really did give it serious thought and decided that one of the things I absolutely had to finish, if I were told I had six months to live, I needed to write a book about all of the information that I'd been synthesizing about the connecting the dots in our health with things that were falling between the cracks between the different specialists. Yes. And that led to my first book. I love it. You know, it's always uh, the input and influence of others on our life. And it's, that's often God working through people, leaving an imprint and an impact on you. Exactly right. And it, it's also as we begin to encourage others to take charge of their lives, we are also learning lessons for ourselves. Yeah, so true. The well, with regard to learned helplessness and feeling disempowered in a government push, that raises the question of this massive push to mass vaccination with experimental vaccines that we have very little safety data on. We don't know the long-term consequences. And people who ask questions are getting shamed. People are being told that they can't live their lives if they don't get vaccinated. What are your thoughts about that? And are there any initiatives in Canada? You mentioned that with regard to the vaccines that the government is treating people as an experimental pool. I see that here in the U.S. as well. Are there any legal initiatives in Canada that are beginning to get underway to protect pe people's rights to choose and be have informed consent? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, just let me speak. When I was, we were talking about um, experiment, I, I was referring very specifically to um, one of the vaccines. I think it's the Pfizer vaccine. You get one dose and you take it, the second one, in 28 days. Well, Trudeau, because he's, whether it's, whatever the reasons are, and I think partly because he's created a, a war against pharma, we have a huge shortage. And so rather than say, we will give you a second dose in 28 days, he said, well, let's just make it four months. Well, who knows? Does it work if it's four months? Like, there's so many unanswered questions. And uh, it's because he can't get the doses. He'd rather make sure everyone gets a first dose and you don't get a second, or at least you don't get it for four months. And the company is saying, well, okay, they should do it in 28 days. There's an example of government making a decision that's not effective. I mean, look, at there's a litany of decisions government makes that ought to be challenged and questioned. Um, you know, look at the alphabet soup I was talking about earlier. Well, that was all government decision-making to create these agencies. Okay, look at the alphabet symbol. That was a government decision to create agencies. PMPRB, the job was don't let pharma gouge you. If you're going to have a patent, you can't charge a million dollars for a pill. And so that was the essence. But then they've taken it to a new extreme and said, you know what, we're just going to 
force them to sell it for a nickel. Well, you've got to factor in R&D and that these companies have no obligation to sell to Canada. But these are bad government decisions that are being made. Government makes bad decisions all the time. People can often make bad decisions. So they need to be held accountable. They need to be challenged. Uh, CF patients, now they say we, we all had to be six feet apart over the past 20 years. But for the first 30 years of my life, no one had that rule. <laughs> so we had CF patient beside CF patient for physiotherapy every day. Well, now that would be a death sentence <laughs> for all the CF people. They would never do it. But bright people were making bad calls. I'm not trying to blame them, but it's an example of just because someone's a doctor or a professional doesn't mean they're always and only making right decisions. Thus, you need to be the CEO. You need to take charge. You need to call out and challenge where appropriate. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with challenging and questioning. First of all, we live in a liberal democracy, and I use the term in the sense of liberty. People have the right to run and govern their own lives. They can't impact others in a negative way, obviously. But you need to be able to criticize and challenge. I mean, one of the geniuses of the U.S. system of government is its constant ability to reimagine itself. Warren Buffett had the great line where he said, it's always a bad idea to bet against the United States of America. No country can reinvent itself more consistently. It's almost like, uh, well, it's the right word to use, but like many revolutions <laughs> in the sense of, you know, every four years, there's a new election and a new direction, sometimes new and sometimes not. But that's the genius of the United States and why it will be and has been forever one of the most powerful countries on earth. Well, if we continue the design of the republic, the constitutional republic mm -hmm. that we were founded with, it may remain powerful and we may freedom. But right at the moment, we're at the precipice and pretty close to falling off of losing our constitutional republic and into the abyss of totalitarianism. Mm. Well, that would be a loss to the world because the United States is, uh, I mean, it's, it's always been a real beacon of hope. Look at, all the, look at the innovation that's come out of the United States of America. You know, so I think it's, uh, but sorry, I've gotten us off a bit, but the point being that it's so important. You asked about government action and whether people should be critical. I think people should always be critical and question and get answers, ask questions, get sound answers, and then make decisions. And uh, absolute, what is the old line? Absolute power corrupts and abs, or power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. You need checks and balances, which is why a, a sound and independent judiciary is so important. You need to be able to take your own government to court as and when required. Well, I'm grateful that there are attorneys that have the fire in the belly to do exactly that. We are short supply on those south of your border and we very much need to look at exactly those kinds of legal challenges. Yeah, well, the, um, I have a lot of faith that you know, people will rise up and uh, 
rise to the occasion, I should say, and appropriately um, commence judicial proceedings where appropriate and effective to challenge laws and uh, where needed. And we've got a couple of lawsuits on the medication side and access to medications in Canada. These two that I'm involved in. And, uh, but it's constant. You just got to listen. Democracy doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> it takes a lot of hard work. Freedom isn't free is a phrase that you will often hear in our country. And that's exactly right. It takes so, all of us working together to maintain it, both for Canada and for the United States. Chris, how can our listeners find your book? How can they find your website, your law firm, any information on the cases that you are leading? Great question. So from the legal perspective, lawsuits we're engaged in, uh, our website is and firm is Cambridge LLP. So C-A-M-B-R-I-D-G-E-L-L-P. Um, I can be reached at cmcleod at cambridgellp.com. On the book side, I mean, it's it's yet to be come out. We hope to have it out within the next two weeks, just after Easter. Uh, but we've got the website beatingtheodds.ca, beatingtheodds.ca. Uh, but of course, anyone can reach me through email at the firm. And, uh, you know, always excited to talk to people from other parts of the world and particularly in the States and share ideas and, uh, be happy to you know, make sure anyone who is interested could get a copy of the book. Wonderful. Chris, thank you so much for your courage, for your absolute dedication to fighting the good fight for others and your strong faith and belief in the power of prayer to help us through adversity I think you've been an inspiration to our listeners, and I've been privileged to have you on Voice of a Nation this evening. So I was just going to say thank you so much, Dr. Lee. It's been terrific time spent talking to you and your listeners, and thank you for having me. You are so welcome, and just thank you for being here. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm, signing off for today. This is your life. As our guest just said, you are the CEO of your health. Your freedom is at stake, so be the Minister of Defense to defend your freedom. Get involved, get loud, and don't be afraid to speak up and help make the world around you a better place.